0: Hi, welcome to Function. I'm Anil Dash, and this is the last episode of our first season, and so we wanted to do something special. We made a trip out to Las Vegas for the Consumer Electronics Show, better known as CES, which is sort of the heart of the tech industry for the week when it takes place. This is that show where hundreds of thousands of people from around the world come to Vegas to see the latest and greatest gadgets, but also where every single company from the biggest names in tech, they all come by and they show off their gear. Google set up a playground for their assistant. And this was basically every kind of smart speaker or smart microphone device you can imagine, from like an instant pot that'll cook your food when you talk to it, to cars that respond to your voice. It was really pretty incredible. And we got to sit right in the middle of it, in the heart of sort of the future of technology, and have a really incredible conversation. My guest, Alex Klein, who you're going to hear a little bit more from in a bit, he captured what it's like to be there.
1: It's circus-like, isn't it? You know, it's a crowd of quite like-minded and like-backgrounded folks obsessing over the the newest and the sparkliest. People come to this conference to see something new, and I think oftentimes they, they do find something.
0: Being at the Consumer Electronics Show really showed off one thing that is very, very obvious. These electronic products with these speakers and these microphones and these cameras are going to be part of your daily life. They're going to be in your house. They're going to be, in my case, in my kid's bedroom. And these gadgets are always around us. They're around our families. And one of the biggest questions that I think any of us reckons with is, what impact is this going to have on kids? What effect is it going to have to raise our children around this kind of technology? And whether you're a parent or not, this affects lives of the next generation. Now, I know this isn't a new discussion. Everybody's been worrying and wringing their hands about the new technology and its effect on kids since fire was the newest technology. But for these folks that are born into a world of smartphones and smart speakers, the kids know the technology really well, but they might not understand all of its implications. And so what we think about, you know, when tech comes into our house is what is the effect of it on, on kids? But what I think about a lot is also how are the kids going to see the technology? What empowers them? How do they feel like they can create with it or that they can control it? And that's where Alex Klein comes in. His company, Cano, creates these kits, and they're they're incredible. They're sort of a do-it-yourself, you build it. I gave one to my kid, actually, on Christmas morning, and I just thought it was so cool. It was one of the reasons we reached out to Alex. And it's something from, you know, building a little box that lights up all the way to this thing that looks exactly like Harry Potter's magic wand, except that you can program it with your computer to do special magic tricks. I talked to Alex about his company, Cano, but also about why it's important for kids to create. So let's jump into that live conversation we had with Alex on the floor of the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. All right. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. This is the live taping of Function. I'm Anil Dash, your host. We are here as the guests of our friends at Google, uh, as well as, of course, Function being a uh, podcast produced by Box Media uh, and my company, Glitch. Uh, And I'm also joined here by Alex Klein of Cano. Who is we're going to talk to in some depth about some of the amazing things he's doing? But first of all, this is the Consumer Electronics yeah. Show, so like sort of anything goes. I mean, there I saw in the news, I haven't seen it in person yet. There's a smart toilet that has a smart speaker in it, and then but I mean, there's more normal things, right? There's there's like uh, your voice controlled speakers and assistants and things. Yeah. There are touch screens you can have around the house that are going to give you assistance. There's all those sort of smart cars and things. One of the most surprising things to me is. Almost all of what I see created here is oriented around being in your home, Mm. in your life. That's very different to how CES was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, where it was like, oh, at work, this is the machine you're going to put on your desk. This is this tool you're going to use. Interesting. And one of the things I think that typifies that is what you're doing at Cano, right, which is this is designed specifically for home, for kids, for families. Can you talk a little bit about what your company is and
1: what you make? Yeah, sure. So we're we're Cano. Uh, We create computer encoding experiences kits uh, for all ages all over the world. We started with uh, the Kano computer kit. Um, I for just, folks
0: listening at home, he's holding up this really cool kit. It's got a clear case, and you can see the circuit boards inside. Yeah. You can see the wires sticking out. It looks a little bit like I would get stopped by the TSA if I took this on a plane, exactly. but because you might not. Because they want to marvel
1: at the gorgeousness of the design. <laughs> they want to you know, compliment you and ask, where did you buy this Kano kit? But can it's beautiful I get a display? It has blinking lights, it's um, great. So you know, the basic premise is simple. You, know, you follow uh, a storybook. Uh, You put together a a real device, we demystify what uh, every component does, it comes to life, Uh, and then our software uh, starts from first principles, uh, leads you on an adventure, you create a profile, you uh, type uh, some secret words into the command line, the computer comes to life, Uh, you start connecting code blocks, sounds ring out. When you wave your coding wand, the sensors turn your movement into data and the PCB beams that data to your computer. And then, once your computer receives the data, it turns it into code. It understands whether you go right, left, up, down, slow, fast, and then it makes a code. Uh, in the case of our magic wand, our Harry Potter wand, it starts to vibrate and glow, uh, and soon you're, you're coding real applications, games, music, uh, in JavaScript, Python. Ungardium Leviosa. Flipendo. Reducio. The basic premise uh, was, you know, certainly to get into the home, but really, you know, anywhere where there is a mind that is curious, anywhere uh, in our society where we spend a third of our waking hours staring at these post-Steve Jobsian um, sapphire screens, anywhere where someone has that sense, how does this work? How do I make it do something new? That's where we want them to try Kana. Um So that's what we do. We've got... Uh, Computer encoding kits, we've got kits that let you build speakers and cameras and grids of pixels. Um, We let you hack Minecraft, make music, uh, make games. Uh, And most recently, we've uh, released uh, the Harry Potter coding kit, which lets you build a wand, learn to code, cast spells on a screen, and then ultimately make your own magic over Christmas Day this year. uh, Every second, uh, a kid, or a beginner we don't know in the world, Mm. uh, made and shared their own spell. So it's not just Hermione Granger's Wingardium Leviosa Mm. or Ron Weasley's Lumos, it's your own artifacts. All right, so we're going to come angle. back to Harry Potter. Pitch spiel.
0: Yeah. It's there good. It's okay. good. No, but I, and the thing, I mean, the reason I brought you on is because this is such an interesting thing to me. One, it, it um, sort of personal investment of this is my kids got one, right? Thank and we, you. We had that Christmas morning moment where he opened it up and, and actually lingered on it instead of just like throwing it aside and saying, what's the next, you know, where, where's the candy? And it was easy enough that an adult can do it. So that was cool. Um, but what you create is, uh, you know, it's nice. There's a kit. You can build stuff, and, and that kids can learn to program these blinking lights and these devices and uh, feel a sense of agency. But the the thing that jumps out to me is there is this ethos in what you're doing, and I think what a few others in sort of similar space are doing, which is that can we teach a young person that technology is something they control, yeah. and they have agency over, as opposed to You're given this tablet, you're given this phone, because, you know, most of us give our kids tablets when they're three, four, five, like pretty young. And we use it as a sedative, right? So if you're on a long flight, we had held off on giving the tablet to my kid until we were like, we went to Japan. It was a 14-hour flight, and I'm like, go nuts, like as much as you want to watch on here. And it was great, because we didn't have to drug it. (laughs) <laughs> but, um, you know, that's a very different relationship to technology than, oh, it's something you make, and yeah. something you program, and something you control. What brought you there? What made you say, and you don't have kids yet, so oh. this is sort of an unusual choice. What brought you to where you want to say, I want to empower people, but especially kids,
1: to be able to make and create and,
0: and control
1: technology? I, get, I mean, there are a few touch points. I mean, I, I was born in London, which is why I sound kind of funky, and, you know, I, I moved <laughs> to Seattle when I was nine, and... Um, My school, it was this like weird nerdy school where I think everyone's parents worked for Microsoft Mm. uh, and I was like the one arts kid. I did theater, like I wanted to write. That was what I wanted to do. And I was kind of uh, alienated, not only because I was wearing baggy Hot Topic jeans and had crazy long hair and everything, but um, because I didn't know how to code. And so I went online and, you know, I asked some questions on an online forum and I thought there were basic questions around programming. If Stack Overflow or mm-hmm. Glitch had existed, I probably would have gotten a better answer. But I got griefed and spammed basically. Yeah. Back
0: in the day, if you asked a programming question and you were like a newbie, you would just get ceaselessly tormented.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I, I had people online saying like, that's a dumb question. Like, what are you, 10 years old? And I was 10 years old. So it was like kind of upsetting. <laughs> it's a good um, excuse. Upsetting. But I'm, I'm also kind of a member of this post-Steve Jobs, sealed Sapphire Screens generation. I was addicted to my MacBook. I would lined up for the the first iPhone, and, and the first time I ever saw the inside of a computer, which, as you remarked with the Kano Computer Kit, is the inside becomes the outside, the inside becomes a story. Um, the first time I saw the inside of a computer was when someone near and dear to me, in you know, a frustration at something I had done, picked up my laptop and smashed it on a, a concrete floor mm. in front of me. So no, it, it's dramatic. Dramatic, right? Yeah, I like um, it. That's why I tell the story. Yeah. But in that moment of sadness, there was this revelation Like behind the veil there's this secret world of circuits and synapses and and, and rules and algorithms. And so I what's a less violent them. way to see inside your device? Well, you can buy a can of computer kit for just $99. <laughs> $99 uh, and I, I
0: mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a sli- I'm like maybe a half generation ahead because we grew up where like we put the computers together, right? You To have totally. a computer at home. Well, the very first ones, they were this same thing, this sort of sealed box. And then you would get to this area where you would swap out the parts and be unplugging things and yeah. get a screwdriver and open things up. But you couldn't, you don't have the tools to open up a modern computer. Like you can't, Your phone is so sort of hermetically sealed, you'll yeah. never get in there.
1: I'd say the other thing on that point of hermetically sealed that sort of brought me to this out of journalism was the time I spent uh, embedded as a reporter for New York Magazine at Occupy Wall Street. Wall Street. Hmm. Occupy Wall Street! Wall Street! So this is a post-financial crisis. I was in there, Zuccotti Park in New York City, in the tents with the protesters, like rain coming down. And I noticed, you know, people were railing against, you know, justifiably the big banks, the hedge funds, in Bernie Sanders' famous formulation, the billionaires and the millionaires, right? And saying, you know, there are these secret rules, you know, these like, uh, this sealed space of Wall Street Ah. that I could never get into, but controls my finance was a black box. Finance was this black box. And then the protesters would take out their iPhones, they'd log into Facebook, and they'd share hashtag Occupy Everywhere. And I remember thinking at the time, like, (laughs) tech is next. Like, you know, this isn't a 1%, it's a 1% of 1%. You know, 20 billion connected devices in the world, less than 50 million people still can code. So never has so much power and so much societal infrastructure been understood written and shaped by so few people. And that gap, that for me was like, I'd studied uh, socioeconomic inequality in grad school and I'd been doing journalism, and all the coding and building stuff out there was really hard to understand. Like the Raspberry Pi for dummies guide is like 400 pages long. And that was supposed to be the approachable way to learn programming. (laughs) Exactly. And that's such an
0: interesting thing because the choices made by a programmer, by a designer who designs code, shape the world around us. Totally. Um, I want to get to this moment that I had Christmas morning, we had uh, one of your kids in the house, and, and my son unwraps it, and we were, and I pried it out of his hands and stole it from him, and I started playing with it, and it was great. It was just a nice moment. I felt like a lot of the sort of joy of programming and, and bringing those things back. Amazing. But that's not the moment I want to focus on, because that, I mean, that's what, you, you make a product, that's what you hope for, right? It was great, and I think it was a great experience. Then, a couple days later, we're at the Apple store, because you just end up there because mm-hmm. some costly cable breaks, and then, you know, he, almost as if entranced, walks sort of mesmerized across this story that he's been to a million times because he saw Harry Potter's wand on the shelf sitting there, right? And that alone is arresting. He's a re- he loves to read. He's read all the books. He's, you know, like any kid. He's, my, my son is uh, seven or almost eight. Like every kid that age, is that's what the world they're living in. And is interesting because you are in a building full of, Brand new cutting edge technology. It looks like this room we're in now, where like we're, as we record this, we're staring across at like every Google Assistant device that can exist from like your like instant pot to your thermostat to whatever else, right? And so in a room full of that, to walk across all that kind of high tech and see, you know, what literally looks like Harry Potter's wand. Mm-hmm. And that taps into imagination, it taps into fantasy, all these things. And I saw it in both lenses at once, which is the wonder of a child, the sort of, it's still magic to them, mm-hmm. it's still real. And boy, that's one effective consumer marketing strategy, right? Like you as a CEO, you have this incredible amount of control and power over my child. And <laughs> I felt both in the same, right, and I felt both in the same moment. I'm curious about, like, have you seen that? Have you seen children in that, in that space? Have you had that, heard that experience from other parents?
1: Yeah. I'm glad it was com- compelling, and uh, I'm happy about that. I think the reason it works well, um, the Kano notion of make your own technology, um, and the Warner Brothers JK Rowling uh, notion of Harry's initiation into the Wizarding World, is there's like a, a fundamental metaphorical overlap, which maybe like it doesn't have to be written on the box, just a, yeah. a picture of a wand, you know, waving and, and fire tracking perfectly does it, but... Right, it tells it, a story on its own. Yeah, it's like, you know, we, we live in this world today where a small subsection of society speaks these secret words and they can move objects with their mind and predict mm-hmm. the future and even get into your mind and make you think things and make you do things, maybe even make you vote for things. That secret subsection we call pro- programmers. We call them so uh, the wizards. Ma- machine learning. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Like, like, like you. Probably better, much, definitely a better programmer than I. And yeah, I think that the idea of like taking you on a hero's journey as Harry goes on a hero's journey, exploring a hidden world, unlocking secret powers that were once held by a small elite, Promethean like, grabbing them, taking them out to the world, uh, and doing it in a really fun way. Um, like a game, like Fortnite, um, which is a creative game with competition. Mm. I think that really appeals to kids, this notion of not just passive, empty play, but creative Mastery, and that's been the case since Minecraft. I and guess. that's
0: interesting because I think you look at Minecraft, you look at Fortnite. The I think adults know them as like you go in there and you blast stuff and you shoot it off or whatever. But kids are seeing it as a place to build, almost like yeah. Legos or blocks or anything else. Or like hang out. Mm-hmm. Right. They're right. They're socializing there. Yeah. I mean, I, I think somebody said about Fortnite recently. It's one of the most popular messaging platforms in the world. Right. So people are like going into a game, arming up, suiting themselves up, building a whole space out, and then going and just chat to other people.
1: I think it's partially, I mean, we, we project our fears about the future on our children. And we live in a time where the pace of change has pushed parents and kids, probably not all, but push parents and kids apart in, in mm. some ways. And there's yeah. these fears around screen time and like, what are these devices doing to my child's brain? Maybe I should take them away. Maybe I should become a neo-Luddite. But I <laughs> right. think... But there isn't a choice there. They're going to be exposed to it. Totally. You can't can't get rid of it, so you may as well bring it to them in a way that is a form of intelligent entertainment, a way that allows them to create a social space of their own because their lives are so scheduled, so regimented. Right. And they are incredible. I mean, we have 10-year-olds on Kano building radio stations, 12-year-olds building Bitcoin miners, you know, 14-year-olds automating the position of solar panels in Kosovo.
0: All right, let's take a break for a minute and we'll come back with more from Alex Klein. No one would have ever thought an entrenched community like Hollywood can let someone come in and completely disrupt the content. I'm Ronnie Mola. And I'm Peter Kafka. And we are the hosts of the new season of Land of the Giants, The Netflix Effect. We're exploring all things Netflix by talking to the people who started the company. We'll get into their bruising battle
1: with Blockbuster. That was 20 times larger than us which is not a good place to be, okay? So in many, ways, why I feel like so randomly lucky to have survived. We'll look at the mistake that could have ended the company. In hindsight, it was incredibly tone deaf and it blew up in our faces as it should have. And we'll talk about how Netflix took over our screens and how they plan to win the war for our attention.
0: Land of the Giants, The Netflix Effect, from Recode and the Vox Media Podcast
1: Network. First episode drops June 23rd. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome back to Function, I'm Anil Dash. We're gonna get right back to the conversation we had live at CES with Alex Klein of Kano. Right, we, I mean, over on Goethe, we had a kid who's 14, uh, who's in India, who's made, well he's made a whole slew of apps, but he's made an app like every month for the last year, mm. each of which has gotten like 100,000 users, right? And so he's just trying different ideas out. And so, so there's this desire to express themselves and to create through code, but I go into, you know, we're at CES, Everybody here is looking at new devices. We're just looking at, you know, whether it's hardware, software, whatever. It's a gadget that goes in your pocket or it's something you install in your home. But we buy it, and it's a black box, and it it just sort of happens to us. It happens to our household. It happens to our family. And and I want to sort of take us inside, you know, presumably you've got a conference room with a whiteboard in your office where you're talking about sketching out, this is the next thing that we want to create that we hope is compelling to kids. What's the conversation you have about this balance of, there is a positive side, which is this is engaging and compelling and draws you in. And you do a great job of this where it stepped me through every part of now you're going to type this in and now you're going to see this light up. And it's, it's just, it's really rewarding. It feels nice. very satisfying. And then the flip side of that is we are programming behaviors into children, right? So what happens in your conversations when you're creating a product where you're saying, how do we balance the responsibility of that or what could go wrong? Do, how, do you game out? The, the,
1: neg- the potential negative or the downside? I mean, that's a really good question. So we're, we're, at, we're 80 people now, and I, I think when you get started, there's this um, incessant, um, inevitable, unavoidable positivity, because like, <laughs> what could go wrong? Yeah. It's like two of us. We're, we're the a,
0: good guys. Yeah, we're yeah. in
1: a flat in North London. We're hand folding cardboard boxes, getting paper cuts, nice. printing books down at the co- Colors Printer on Curzon Street then you get to 80 people you know you're so
0: desperate just to keep the doors open that you can't even think anything bad right totally
1: yeah and and I still think you you have to preserve that I mean if who here has ever been skiing before or snowboarding right so who here has ever skied or snowboard through trees right? (laughs) so um, if uh, if you've ever done that before um, you know that the way to avoid hitting a tree is not to focus on the trees and be like, how do I avoid these trees? It's like you focus on the spaces between the trees. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you're ever in a crowded airport, if you don't ski or snowboard, like that's, you can do this exercise, like try walking through and being like, how do I avoid all these people? And then try going through the spaces. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we do try and focus on the spaces. I think the other aspect to your question around kids' responsibility, like, we have a great kid community. I mean, we've shipped 600,000 units since September 2014. Most of those have gone to, to kids. Yeah. However, paradoxically, when we set out to design a product, we don't emphasize or obsess over the kid dynamic. So we describe Kano as computer encoding kits for all ages, all over the world. And the, the reason for that is you know, this next generation, they're the first to be born... Um, who won't remember a time before the internet. They're the first to be born in the age of like mass-distributed open-source software where most smartphones in the world run yeah. Linux. You know, the age of uh, constant connectivity, you can get 4G internet on Mount Everest now. Yeah. Um, they, they won't remember not having access to smartphones and information yeah, yeah. everywhere. So, so it may be that a new kind of person has actually been born. But what I think is like, when you design something for kids, what you do is you create a metaphor and an archetype in your mind of a kid, and then you try and serve it. But that metaphor or archetype is based on who? Yourself, when you were a kid, uh, in my case 20 years ago. So it'll always be out of date. Mm -hmm. So we we try and just create a product that is simple, creative end-to-end, social, um, and driven by narrative. And we try and speak to fundamental feelings that we all have, like to look inside, to take control, to build stuff to play. Probably as, as you yeah. guys do a glitch. Like, so I'm curious though, yeah. but,
0: but if you look at something where yeah. I, I've come across this, where you you want to you want to almost want to have the like the potato chip thing of like I always want to eat one more, <laughs> right? And when you design a product, you always want to like, oh, of course we want more engagement, and of mm-hmm. course we want them to spend more time, right? And, and if I've got lessons, I'm doing on. Kano, or I've got apps I'm building on Glitch, or any of things, not just the stuff we build, but what's out there in the world. If I, would, like, I want to look at one more photo on Instagram, yeah. there's almost this treadmill. And it's different for children than for adults, right? Well, maybe it's not, but, but we, we at least think we, okay, we need to protect them and shield them. Do you ever think about, you know, what's the time limit? Or is that the thing where, like, I'm supposed to go on my device, my phone, and say, I don't want to spend more than an hour on this or two hours on this in a day? Or has that not yeah. come up? That's not that's not your, your challenge yet.
1: Well I think we're we're helped in a sense by the fact that parents are part of the equation and the yeah. the vector for it and you know So it's it, very participatory. You see people kids doing it with the parents. I, I like to I like to see that. But I, I also think there is a role that the parent has in in moderating the usage of the child. And like we should build a tool that the child and the adult really want to use organically and feel really good about using at the end of the session, like a good long form piece of journalism mm-hmm. or a brilliant effective documentary, like something right. that informs and entertains. Right. I think if, we're, if we keep ourselves honest about that um, and we work really closely with parents and provide parents tools to see their kids' usage, as we do today. Yeah, yeah. that kind of mitigates. So as long as it's learning and it's sort of generative and
0: not yeah. just sort of feeding someone. Because it's an interesting thing that comes up to me where my son's a reader. As I said, he reads you know Harry Potter or whatever, um, and nobody ever scolds me of like, are you limiting his page time?
1: Yeah, right. Exactly. Like strangers
0: will say like, how much screen time do you let him have? And they never say like page time. And I'm like, well, it depends what the book is, right? Like you know, if it's like sort of like some violent garbage book, then i am be like, I probably don't yeah. let him read that much. But we seem to have a very different relationship. Like, screen time doesn't differentiate whether it's, like, he's learning something useful or... Consuming and just
1: watching YouTube. And right, yeah, well, yeah. And then, you know, these like there's stuff online that you're like,
0: I don't know how much of that I want him to have.
1: There's um, a good quote on this. Um, so one of our investors is Sesame Workshop, the nonprofit that takes care of uh, Sesame Street. And the founder of Sesame Street was this amazing woman called Joan Ganz Cooney. So she describes the purpose of Sesame Street when it started was to master the addictive qualities of television and do something useful with them. Rather than like, ah, look at this demon. Say, look at this power. How can we humans harness it to prepare the next generation for the future, and enrich our democracies, create more uh, engaged and generative cultures, to use all the big words. Like, yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, I think it's that. It's like we try and... a good and, TED talk. I'm ready for there it. There we go, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Anyone know someone can get me an invite? Like, um, but yeah, master social media. Master the application paradigm and do something useful with it.
0: So I, I want to go into that. That's sort of that idea of mastery, which is I think where we reflexively come these days to teach kids to code. Yeah. Right? And and it's sort of like this very mom and apple pie thing. Nobody can be against teach kids to code. I mean, I you know, I run a company that helps people code and we got lots of kids coding, so I'm like I'm not against it. But I'm always skeptical every time everybody is uniformly in favor of something. There's this narrative that sort of come up and, and you and I sort of talked about this earlier, but there's uh, you know, for a while, it was like, well, your kid's going to be the next Mark Zuckerberg, mm. right? Which now sounds not quite as complimentary, one. And two, is that what we want? Like, is that, is yeah. that, and because there's all these implications about everything from, you know, concentration of wealth to trust of people's information to, you know, all the other things that represents, you're inside that world, right? Where where people point to what you create and say, this is the thing that's going to teach your kid to code. How do you feel, is Your what's your responsibility about that? And what's your attitude
1: about should we teach every kid in the world to code? I think code is a means to an end rather than the end in and of itself. Mm. I think that the fetishization of programming and coding for kids kind of otherizes it. Mm. The a- analogy I would draw is you know, if the first uh, personal computer revolution was about taking, using PCs, which previously only a small subsection of society did, you know, you were building them, you know, people in the basement hacking together their own computers, that was niche. Now we all carry a personal computer in our pockets. It was
0: really uncool. Like, it's hard to overstate how uncool it was to be (laughs) building and using computers in the 80s. And now now people are like, I want to come to Vegas and and Mm -hmm. see, like, learn
1: about technology. Totally. And, And, like, it took great design, like, the desktop paradigm, the folder structure, um, menus drag and drop like well, somebody had to invent all these things. somebody invented that those we are trying to invent for the process of shaping and building computers and technology and apps and you, you guys are doing amazing work on this too and it would be wrong to fetishize the folder manager menus drag and drop mm-hmm. it's more about so what it's they not the allow artifacts of do. it right? it's yeah. empowerment uh, the steve jobs might who knows this promise like that Steve Jobs made in the early days that like the personal computer should be the mind bicycle. Anyone familiar with this? The bicycle for your mind, yeah. This
0: is inside sort of tech coder nerd world. It's like a very famous statement that he made. Uh, What a computer is to
1: me is, it's the most remarkable tool that we've ever come up with. And it's the equivalent of a bicycle for our minds. I think it's about fulfilling that promise so people can make interesting things, have more control over the services they depend on, whether they learn this particular language or that, you know, along the way, great. But to your point, yeah, I mean when we started, the whole discourse was really bottom line, really pre vocational. And to most <laughs> kids we talk to, really, really boring. Like, you know, build an app, sell it, make a million dollars. Right.
0: I mean the impression I get from a lot of like teach kids to code efforts is they're like, well, if we do this right, then the technology industry can hire coders more cheaply because there will be more of them. Yeah, so like one of the, they're just like trying to make people that have this trade skill. And I mean that's fine. Like if you're doing vocational training like sure, it's like learn to be a plumber, learn to be a coder, that's right. fine. But that's a different thing than understand the role of technology in your life, which is almost like media literacy yes. or civics. civics. We sort of learn how the systems around the world around around you affect you. Yeah. But I don't think that that seems to be different than learn to code, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I think there's an element to all of this, and this might be slightly controversial, where it's like a lot of the learn-to-code efforts have arisen from within uh, big tech, yeah, and yeah. a lot of them are funded by large um, technology corporations. That right, have, which,
0: understandably, I mean, yeah. I think they're very sincere in they do want more kids to learn to code, but also it serves their interest to say we can have more
1: coders, right? Exactly, yeah, and reduce the average wage of a programmer, which has risen to ridiculously um justified levels you know in the in the last few years and i i I think when those efforts arise from within big tech it's kind of like um challenging from a design perspective because those in that world came up with technology and love it and live it and breathe it and it's kind of the beginner's mind and you know the artist's approach that sometimes is able to take something sealed and, and make it accessible and simple for for a beginner rather than the the experts' approach from right. within big tech, right. um, but I think there's there's a role to be played with the big companies and the small companies collaborating. Yeah. Or I wouldn't be here in this. Yeah. Uh, Google but so, so even right. even almost right. putting aside the coding aspect of it, how how do we
0: teach kids, but anybody, any age, that technology could be something that we control, that we have agency over, that we are that we can be a wizard, right? We can be the one that sort of has this authority and not just something that happens to us and not just whatever device they happen to give us is is the only choices we have.
1: I think mean, you can make them a glitch account, you know, you could, like <laughs> buy them a mechanical computer. All right, kit. your check is in the mail. No, yeah. but I'm
0: serious, like what, what, yeah. like what does it take culturally? What does it take to change attitudes? Is it, is it kids growing up with devices that they've created or programmed?
1: I think that's an element of it, yeah. I think, I think we've come into this age where you can get a really fast computer, a computer exponentially more powerful than the mainframe that took Apollo to the moon yeah. for less than the cost of a curling iron. And I think there's an element of wonder that needs to be restored. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. I think four, four years ago when we started the company, the wonder was very much personalized, like you would watch a movie like The Social Network, you would um, look at uh, a TechCrunch stage interview. Um, it used to be that journalists were the people outside the building uh, lobbying uh, lobbing questions at the execs or the people in power as they they exited and the people in power were being shielded Mm -hmm. by their handlers and i i can't ever forget that kara swisher tech crunch interview with mark zuckerberg on an elevated stage and as soon as uh he gets asked a tough question on privacy and starts to sweat (laughs) kara um says what do you want to take off your sweater he takes off his sweater and he you know he turns it around and he says you know this is facebook's mission and, like inside, and inside
0: his sweatshirt yeah. was like the runes of the Illuminati, right? Exactly. Like, this is the weirdest thing i would ever seen in my life. That is a warm hoodie. I'm
1: yeah, sure. no, it's a thick hoodie. We, it's, um, it's a company hoodie. We print our mission on the inside.
0: What? Oh, oh my really? God, the inside of the hoodie, everybody. Take a <sighs> moment. What is it? Making the...
1: Making the world more open and connected.
0: Oh, my God. It's like a secret Ooh. cult. <laughs> Look at that. Making the world open and connected. Stream, graph, platform, and this weird symbol in the middle that is probably for the Illuminati.
1: (laughs) We felt that wonder then, like, look at these boy geniuses that can um, do in two years what big companies with 10 times the resources take 20 years to do. But I think the wonder that we need to evoke now is like, you know, look at this 12-year-old on Glitch who, you know, hacked Spotify uh, and Google Voice like look at this 16 uh, year old in Sierra Leone who built his own battery added an FM radio transmitter this was done with Kano uh, and started broadcasting tracks across his village That's under incredible. the name DJ Focus like so look rather at what than up on the pedestal do. and up yeah. on
0: stage that they're sort of ordinary creators many of whom happen to be kids or young yeah. people
1: but not not just are you going to be the next billionaire exactly like um, generative artists people combining code and music um, People who are um, who are looking at decentralized networks not just from the perspective of crypto and how to make a quick buck um, it's
0: not but, all Bitcoin yeah it's
1: not all Bitcoin yeah yeah but how to protect data and build alternatives to, to the classic internet and you know I think to your point on instagram's square like structure people building their own websites and hosting their content there that's not that hard and anyone here I think could do it and you know that's a start um, and you know, it's kind of like taking a civics class. Yeah.
0: See. I want to get into that one point you sort of mentioned there, which is creative coding or artistic coding. Mm. That's a whole scene, right? There are cultures all over the world of people expressing themselves through code and art. Is that something you see in your community or something you, you pay attention
1: to? So our most popular uh, app is called Make Art, and it's a CoffeeScript. Uh, <laughs> that wasn't a
0: setup, but that's pretty good. It well, right. yeah. yeah. nice.
1: It's like a CoffeeScript drawing uh, program, people making fractals and trees and characters and animations. We have a girl on our community called uh, Cool Guinea Pig uh, who has thousands <laughs> of followers. And when she goes on vacation, um, she'll tell her followers she's going away. And she's not going to be making art over, over that week because she's going to be on holiday. And it's and, not
0: just painting. This is not like a paint app. This is using code to generate yeah. art. And it's visuals, music, What what's involved.
1: Yeah, so make art is more visuals. But you also have people making, um, make, making beats and melodies like... Kanye remains incredibly popular in the world of uh, under 13 code art, just so, so you all know. And, um, it's
0: good to have a constituency.
1: Yeah, um, I think that's really a big part of making this stuff accessible to everyone, showing that it's a way to express yourself, not just to solve a problem, which is typically the tech landscape formulation. How do we solve problems? How do we make money? You know. How do you express yourself? How do you surprise someone? How do you tell a joke, even if it yeah. means drawing a piece of human anatomy with code and sharing it on <laughs> on Twitter? Um,
0: and and do people do they, are the kids like do they make the you know the Mother's Day card or, or whatever or the birthday card on yeah. on their devices and that's how they're creating just as they would with construction paper or markers?
1: Yeah, t- tons of that. You know, making gifts for one another, making competitions there was a, a Google logo competition on Kano, which was like who could remix the Google logo and you stretch it and change it. Well, Alex, thank you for taking
0: the time. I really enjoyed getting to dive into this. I hope everybody gets a chance to think a little bit more about you know, some of these narratives we hear about. Like we get excited about new devices, but where do they come from and what's the thought behind them? And we think about technology's role in our lives and especially for children, how do we empower them to be creators, yeah. right? And not just sort of consumers. Uh, obviously, you've gotten a chance to talk a lot about Kano uh, and what you're doing. If people want to find you, how do they find you and check it out?
1: Yeah, so just Google Kano, K-A-N-O, or go to our website, K-A-N-O.me, me. Uh, you can see uh, all of our computer encoding kits. You can see the Bratislava Symphony Orchestra conducting uh, a, a beautiful composition with a magic wand. You can see the Weasley twins and Steve Wozniak building and coding their own computers. And you can take on a few simple projects to get started.
0: Very cool. Thank you for joining us. Thank you all for being Thank here you. for uh, our first ever live recording of Functions. That's it for our conversation from CES. And, you know, being in Las Vegas for the biggest tech trade show of the year was almost overwhelming. There's all these blinking lights, super loud speakers everywhere, all these devices that are just, you know, blinking and beeping and trying to get you to do things. The wildest thing about that, especially when we had this conversation about kids and their relationship to technology, is imagining a whole generation that is born into that world. Right? Those of us who are adults get to see these things develop and see, you know, smartphones get invented. But if this is the world you're born into, can you ever have a sense that you control these technologies or are they just something that's inevitable that's just around you that just happens to you? And I think that's the thing that we're all reckoning with, not just kids, but adults, everybody, whether it's in their personal life, in their work life, in every aspect of culture, we're thinking about the way that technology shapes the world around us and that these little choices made by the people that create the technology really have huge impact on our lives. And it's interesting because that's a theme that has come up in every single one of these episodes we've had a function so far. Like I take it back to the first episode of the season. We talked to two Millie. He's the Brooklyn rapper that invented the Millie Rock. And that's this dance that is in not just Fortnite, but every single one of these popular video games. And we went deep on Fortnite. Like, how do the dances get in there? What do the creators do? And just as importantly, do the creators of the dances get credited? Do they get compensated? And at the time, I felt like, maybe we're taking this thing a little bit too seriously. Maybe it's not that big a deal. But you fast forward a little bit, it's not that much later. And all of a sudden, you have... Artists like Alfonso Ribeiro, who a lot of people know from The Fresh Prince, who is suing Epic Games over their depiction of his dance in their game. A lot of other artists are doing the same thing. And it starts to feel like something bigger is happening, not just from video games, but in every aspect where somebody is writing a line of code or putting a button on our phone or putting a link on our screen. And it turns out that has huge impact in the way we live and what happens in culture. What happens to society? That connection just keeps rising. And, you know, we have really enjoyed exploring that in Function. We've got the season two coming, but we want to hear your ideas about the choices that are happening, the decisions that are happening in the technology we use and the ways that it's changing the world around us that might not be that obvious. Tell us what you want to hear from us. We've got a lot of ideas we're going to be working on. And in the meantime, please tell your friends about Function. We hope they'll give it a listen. We appreciate all of you who've shared and listened and told your friends about Function. It's been incredible to see it take off and really find an audience for an aspect of culture that is really overlooked when we talk about technology. Well, that's it for this episode and for this season. Function is produced by Bridget Armstrong. Our associate producer is Maurice Cherry. Nishat Kurwa is the executive producer of audio for the Vox Media Podcast Network. Our engineers for this episode are Jarrett Floyd and Brandon McFarland. And our theme music was composed by Brandon McFarland. Thanks to Google for hosting us at CES. And huge thanks to my team at Glitch for this episode, but also for the entire season of support on glitch.com. You can follow me on Twitter, at Anil Dash, And please remember to subscribe to the show wherever you listen. And if you're just catching us at the end of the season, do go back and listen to the episodes earlier. We think you'll really enjoy them. And we'll be back soon with season two. Thank you so much for listening to and supporting the first season of Function. Now, as we gear up for season two, we want to learn more about you. So if you've got a minute, please take the Vox Media Podcast Network survey. It's at voxmedia.com forward slash podsurvey. It should take about two or three minutes to complete, and it'll really help us a lot for future episodes. Again, just go to voxmedia.com forward slash podsurvey. Just take a second to fill it out, and we'll also put a link in the show notes of this episode if you want to fill out the survey. Thanks so much for taking a minute to do that, and thank you so much for listening to Function. We'll see you next season.